Hear the word of God from Romans 8.18 to 39. I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from the bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of the childbirth right up to its present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we eagerly await for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he searches our hearts, knows the mind of our spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not... He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for all of us, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus, who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardships or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor death, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church family. It's so good to be able to worship with you this morning. And I love saying that phrase, good morning. But it's an interesting and very common phrase, isn't it? I mean, we use it all the time. We say good morning all the time. But what do we mean when we say good morning? Are you saying, it's a good morning and you should enjoy it with me? Or are you saying, um, are we say good morning like a question? Are you having a good morning? Good morning? Do you say good morning in order to proclaim it to be such? Like, good morning, today will be a grand morning. Or do we say it's just a form of greeting that is dependent on the time that we greet someone? You know, we, we don't notice whether it's a good morning or not. It's just a way of saying hello before noon. Just something I was thinking about. I don't know why. This is a random thought. As I was, I was typing out my sermon, that's how I thought. I always start off by good morning. I always say good morning. I'm like, what do I really mean when I say good morning? And the reason I was thinking about this is that for some of you, just to be honest, maybe it isn't a good morning. Maybe it's not a good morning for you, for you this morning. Maybe you're, you're in a tough place and facing a difficult time. 
Maybe you're quietly suffering. Maybe you're loudly suffering. And it might be tough for you to hear a good morning from me. I think maybe the sermon then is for you today. As well as maybe you're with us this morning and you're having a good morning, nay, a great morning. This sermon is for you as well. Because I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer or anything, but you will have a morning at some point in your life that will not be so good. Jesus says to us, in this world, we will have trouble. We will suffer. We will feel pain. These are facts. This morning, let me share with you this very real truth. That the sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us. I'm going to say that one more time. The sufferings of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed to us. In Romans 8, we see that God has worked in Christ to free his people from sin so they can walk in the spirit towards life and peace. Likewise, we see that God has brought his people into a family through adoption. We can cry out to God and call him Father because of the Holy Spirit's work to bring us into a family. Paul now shifts this address to the problems that we face in this sin-soaked world and shows us his desire is to give his people, us, a God confidence to help them in this reality with a future hope. There's this tension between reality, the circumstances we experience, and the hope that we have what we can look forward to. And it's all over this text. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Paul starts off this section by addressing present suffering and comparing it to a future glory that we will be revealed. He puts circumstances side by side with a future hope for us to compare. Notice he does not dismiss the sufferings in this world and the hardships we face because of sin's presence and the corruption of what is good. Yet Paul constantly points us forward to what we can hope for in Christ and how God is at work in the nitty gritty of life through the, through the work of the Holy Spirit in God's providence. So one myth I just want to start off by rapidly and quickly dispelling is that the one that if we live a good and godly life, a person can avoid suffering. I'll just, just completely start off by addressing that myth. As many Christians believe that if they live a life like they're supposed to, they can avoid at least minimize suffering. Maybe not avoid it completely. Suffering will happen. Bad things will happen. People will die. But if we live a really good godly life, maybe I can minimize suffering. I'll do whatever at all costs to avoid suffering. But notice that Paul assumes in this passage that suffering is a part of the believer's life. He just assumes it. He, he accepts it as fact. That suffering is a part of a believer's life. Verse 18, this present time has sufferings. Verse 23, we all groan under them. Verse 21, all of creation is subject to this fertility and bondage to corruption. Nothing in this passage assumes that if you're God's child, you can avoid these realities. In fact, it says the opposite. Just as I said earlier, Jesus told his disciples, in this world, you will have trouble. There's a related assumption is that many believe in our culture that, that life by itself inevitably turns out positive. That the universe is wired to turn out for good, structures that every dark cloud eventually has a silver lining. But this passage actually indicates the opposite. Creation, Paul says, is in bondage to fertility. That's where it's all headed. And it's only through God's special intervention on behalf of believers that anything works out for good. 
That's a totally different mindset, I think, that some of us are used to. We're used to this kind of, like, especially me, guys, I want you to know this about me. My wife has been passionate about Enneagrams lately, and I'm a number seven, and I'm all about optimist, you know, everything's going to be great, everything is awesome, from the Lego movie kind of guy, the grass is always, uh, or the, the next thing is always going to be the best, best thing, and everything's good going to happen to me. That's kind of my natural personality. And for me, this, this, this passage kind of reveals that I'm wrong in my natural line of thinking. That not everything should just work out for the good of everything. Not, not everything by nature in, in its way it's made is made for the universe to work itself out. In fact, the scripture says that it's all leading towards corruption. That it's corrupted in futility. And that it doesn't just work itself out. But if it does work itself out, it's because God is moving on behalf of the believers. This is incredible to me because what I've been thinking about is what, what I'm kind of giving up to like random chances knows actually God's providential hand in my life. And for those of you who think, oh, well, if you're on the optimistic side of things, maybe this teach you that this is what God's doing. But if you're on the pessimistic side of things, God is still working in light of the circumstances in your life. And I know it sounds depressing, but here's the thing. Paul is giving us such a hope reality of our day. I'm so much happier and at peace knowing that the Bible tells us that we will suffer because that is what I see in my reality in this world. Because can I be honest with you, if the Bible said, hey, we're not going to suffer and everything's going to be rosy and awesome and after you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, everything's going to be great and incredible and you're never going to suffer again, I would really struggle with the Bible. Because that wouldn't be the reality I see around me. I would see suffering, and I would see that this world doesn't match up to the Bible, that I would really struggle with it. But I thank God that the Word says that we will suffer, and there's hope in that. Because thanks be to God that it is a real and relevant world for us to live in. We suffer. And for some of you, that may be cancer, or chronic illness, maybe depression, it may be the loss of loved ones, it might be stress of work and life, but we all suffer. But we take heart. Because it isn't for nothing, and it is nothing compared to the riches of glory that is ours. Let me say that again, guys. We, we will suffer. The Bible says we will suffer, and we're encouraged by that because it's a real book reaching real times to real people. And in the midst of our suffering, we say, take heart then, because you are suffering. There's a purpose in it. We take heart because it's not for nothing, and it is nothing compared to the riches of glory that is ours. Romans 8, 19-22, kind of Paul does this little shift to this whole talk about all the cosmos. And Mark Keown says this, in, in, in 5.12, Paul tells us that death invaded the creation through the sin of Adam and all humankind, ourselves included. Paul personifies creation four times. The, the, the catisis is portrayed as one enslaved, a doula, to the decay. Then Paul imagines creation as a woman crying out in the pains of childbirth. Yet hope is found as a creation will be set free to experience the glory of the children of God. This pictures nature going through a process akin to the resurrection and new birth of God's faithful out to consummation. The hope is for the restoration of the conditions of Eden, a world free from decay and death. What Paul is telling us here is that the reason we have suffering, the reason struggle exists is because of sin. And creation itself is under decay of sin, but that Jesus came to renew and recreate creation. And, is, and it is eagerly anticipating this day. So in this telling, in this, Paul is, telling us, is reminding us that we too are like creation. We are being renewed. 
And in verse 23, Paul focuses again on believers who are children of the creation in troubled times, who have received the first fruits of the Spirit. With creation, we too groan inwardly, waiting with great eagerness for the consummation. And I love this picture that it says, it literally says, even look at creation. Creation itself is subject to decay. It is struggling, but we are like creation. We groan. Guys, can I tell you this? How many of you guys ever groan in suffering and in pain? Yeah. Just recently, we had some tragedy occur in our, in our preschool. And when I heard about the loss of life, and, I, and when I read about this and hear about it, and I see people connected with it, my spirit just groans. My wife and I would stay up that night when we heard about this, and we stayed up praying. And in our praying, as we're weeping, as our spirit, as we're groaning, we, we think to ourselves, this is not the way it should be. And not only are we doing this, but all of nature is doing this. The decay that we see in nature, as we see the world decaying, we're saying it's groaning because it was meant to be perfect. It was meant to be right. And sin has decayed. And so our spirit, our, our cells, we groan alongside nature. But I love this. Paul uses the term hope five times here at the end of this, in verse 24, in rapid succession, reminding us that we are saved into this hope of personal redemption. He says this in verse 24 and 25. It says, For in this hope we are saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul is saying hope is essential. Hope is key. Hope in the character of God to do what he says he will do. Let me say that again. Hope in the character of God. That he will do what he says he will do. Guys, can I tell you this? Our hope is not one day... Um, that um, just because for randomly just it's going to happen that everything's going to get better. Our hope is the fact it's built and rooted in the confidence we have that God is a God who will do what he says he will do. Our hope is not built on some random promise that's written on a scroll randomly, but our hope is built on the character of God and who God is. And so we have confident hope built on whose character is. But we also have some help in this hope. Verse 26 says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. Now, I love this confession of weakness from Paul. I mean, kind of, we all felt this way, haven't we? When we go to God to pray, and we pray, but we don't really know how to pray or what to pray for exactly. I've been in that boat many times. Do I, do I pray for this circumstance in my life to go away? Or do I pray for the strength to, to bear a tough time to show God's glory? You've ever been in that situational prayer before where it's like, God, this stinks, and I don't want this, this is hard. Do I pray for it to be removed? Or is that a selfish prayer? And do I pray that you just give me the strength to go through with it? And you're stuck in kind of this middle ground. You're like, well, God says to ask, but then you're stuck in this place where, well, but God is good enough to get me through. I don't know what to pray. That's okay. That is okay. We don't know how to pray in our weakness, but two persons pray for you perfectly. If you look at verse 34 later on, it says, Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, is also interceding for us. Jesus is interceding that everything that he has purchased for you on the cross, on a Calvary, your forgiveness of sin, your peace of heart, your growth in holiness, your perseverance to the end, that all those would come to be your possessions and his prayer is perfect and will prevail. 
Your Savior prays for you. Your Jesus prays for you perfectly. But so also does the Holy Spirit. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes. So at the right hand of the Father, the Son is praying for you. And that the Spirit that is dwelling within you is praying for you. Perfect prayers, and they shall prevail. And as you pray in your weakness, and that struggle of your prayer, you learn to take hold of God, who you prize more than any other blessing that you can be given. Guys, that should be encouragement for you. Because when you face difficult circumstances, when you face struggles, and you don't even know how to pray, and your body just groans, and you moan, and you don't know what to do, take comfort, my friends, my, my brothers and my sisters, that Jesus himself, at, at the right hand of God the Father, is praying for you, and the Holy Spirit inside of you is praying for you. That your hope is not a hope just by yourself, that you don't have to conjure up enough hope in and of yourself, but the Savior of man the Son of God is praying for you and the Holy Spirit inside of you is praying for you. Take heart. Take hope in that. You're not alone. You're not alone in your suffering. You're not alone in your confusion. You're not alone in asking God for help. Jesus and the Spirit are both praying for you. And there's encouragement for you there. But there's also transformational work that is happening in your suffering. If you look at verses 28 and 29, it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And you read that text, and it, asks, it begs to ask two questions. First of all, what are all the things in which God works for my good? And we don't have to speculate, actually. Paul later on tells you exactly what they are. If you look at verse 35, he talks about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and the sword. These are a kind of representative lifts that's inclusive of pretty much any hardship that might face a believer. Now, maybe yours might not be the sword. Most of you guys probably aren't fearful of the sword. Am I correct on that? I mean, if you are, I want to live your life. But no, but it's not the sword, but these are representations of, of what is out there, of shame because of nakedness, of the sword of guns or violence, persecution, distress, tribulation, famine. These are all representative of the troubles and tribulations and sufferings you will face in life. Every believer will. And you have your own, don't you? You have cancer, fractured relationships, anxiety over money and safety, Concerns over, over health and your family's health. Famine. Losing jobs. Security. And you've just struggled with it. Maybe depression that you struggled with your entire life. Whatever that burden is that you're bringing with you, God is at work in them for your good. So you ask, what are all the things in which God works for my good? And the next question we ask is, what's the good that God works for? We find that in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the good. See, the things that he works, we talked about what are the things that he works, these are all the bad things that happen. But what's, what's the for good? This is for good. Conformity to the image of Christ. Holiness. Christ-likeness. You're becoming more like Jesus. That's the good that he's working for. And guys, do not let that slip your minds. Do not let that go away. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. By our suffering, God conforms us to the image of his son. 
Hebrews tells us that Jesus learned obedience through suffering. He, the perfect son of God, learned obedience through what he suffered in order that he might be firstborn among many brothers. That word firstborn means preeminent, supreme. The Lord who was crucified is now raised to glory and seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's reigning for us in a supreme position of power and authority. And we are becoming more refined and Christ-like through the dark and dirty effects of sin in our lives and in this world. They're terrible. They stink. But God is using it for our good. Our good being made more and more to the likeness of Jesus so it isn't suffering for no reason. Now we can suffer confidently because we know God will use it to make us more like Jesus. Not a second of our suffering is wasted. Not one thing happens in your life that the goodness of God will not transform into glory. And one day, you're going to be able to look back over your life and you can see the transformational work that suffering has led to. There's a group, Shane and Shane, sing a song. One of my favorite songs of all time. And it's called, Though You Slay Me. And it was written by a guy named Shane Bernard when his dad passed away unexpectedly. And in the middle of the song, they spliced in an excerpt from John Piper's sermon. And these are the words that Piper's sermon goes in into this excerpt of this song. This is what Don Piper says. He says, not only is your affliction momentary, not only is it light in comparison to eternity and the glory there, but every second of it is totally meaningful. Every millisecond of your misery in the path of obedience it is producing a peculiar glory you will get because of that suffering. I don't care if it's cancer or criticism, slander or sickness. It wasn't meaningless. It's doing something. Of course, you can't always see what it's doing. Don't look to what is seen. When your mom dies, when a child dies, when you've got cancer at 40, when a car careens into the sidewalk and takes her out, don't say that's meaningless. It's not. It's working for you an eternal weight of glory. Therefore, don't lose heart. But take these truths and day by day focus on them. Preach them to yourself every morning. Get alone with God and preach his word into your mind until your heart sings with confidence that you are known and cared for. The bad things, the things that he's taking and using for glory, all things, the things are, is tribulation, is famine, is sorrow, is cancer, is sickness, is anxiety, is depression, is losing your job, losing your loved one. These are all terrible things, but God is using it to secure a peculiar glory in you. It's the result of sin that he uses to make you more like Jesus. None of it's wasted. I love that about our God, isn't it? He doesn't waste it. Even the bad things that happen to you. He doesn't waste it. He uses it to make you more like Jesus. To produce fruit of the Spirit in you. And you're not alone. The Spirit is interceding. Christ himself is interceding at the right hand of God. And this is what happens then as he does this. If we look through the rest, 31 through 39, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In our suffering and distress, it's easy to feel that the whole world is against you. Well, God's for you in Christ Jesus, and if God is for you, who can be against you? No one can triumph over you. This is how great the Father's love for you is. The Father who defeats all your enemies. He says in verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, 
but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Octavius Winslow asked, who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. His love for you there on the cross. God demonstrates his love for you that while you are yet sinners, Christ died for you. Think about your greatest fears in life. Think about the greatest sufferings that you could suffer. Name that. Name that fear. Name that sin. Name that thing that you struggled with. Name that issue that, that holds you back. Name that sin that troubles you, that, re, that you've maybe repented from but still plagues you. Name the issues that you're so most afraid of. And in verse 33, look, it says, Who will bring charges against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. If God, the supreme judge of the universe, has rendered the verdict of justified on your life and has declared you righteous in Christ Jesus, there is no judge in the entire world who can overturn that verdict. I love in verse 34 we have this progression. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life. There's a progression of crucifixion, resurrection, seated at God's right hand. That's the pathway of Christ's victory, and that's our victory as well, as we belong to Jesus by faith. And we look at 35 and 36, these dreadful circumstances that we just talked about earlier, the tribulation, the distress, the persecution. But as we look at those circumstances, we must know that not a one of them can separate us from the love of God. Guys, I want you to understand this. And this is what I found so incredible. As, as, we, as we look, as we climb to the highest of the mountain or descend to the deepest of the sea, we'll find nothing that can separate us from the love of God. I love Paul's doing this such poetic, such extreme language to say to his people, guys, I understand you're suffering. To you early Roman Christians, those, often those of you who left and escaped where you were because you were persecuted. Guys, I want you to understand that Paul's writing his letter not to be, everybody's like, hey, life is great and everything is going incredible and it's awesome and we're successful and we're wealthy. No, he wrote his letter to Christians who've been persecuted already, who've lost their home, who are living as refugees in other places, who've experienced what it meant to tribulation and the sword and suffering, who knows what they're acquainted with suffering. And he's telling them, guys, God's using it for glory. And he's looking at them, those who've suffered, those who've suffered greatly. He's looking at them and saying, guys, can you just picture with me the depth and the breadth of God's love for you? Nothing can separate you from that. Guys, I've heard of so many people who tell a story of, I just, I can't believe in God. Because if he was real, he wouldn't have let blank happen. Right? I've heard so many examples and so many stories, and that breaks my heart. And the last thing I want to do is be, oh, you're so wrong. I, uh, I don't want to come down because they've suffered. But can I tell you something? For me and for those who I know who, who have suffered, it's so much more comforting to know that suffering has meaning. Suffering has purpose. Than to say, well, it's just it is the way it is. To know that God, even in the midst of suffering, is greater than whatever suffering I can have. That I can be, even through suffering, even when I'm a slave, even when I suffer, even I can be the lowest scum in all of society, I'm still called more than a conqueror. That this world is not all there is. There is hope eternal in that. 
This is our comfort. This is our encouragement. Every good, godly gift, every joy that we experience is just a foretaste of heaven for us. Do you understand that? Every good moment and good gift that we experience on this earth is come from the Father of light. Every good gift comes from Him. And it gives us a taste of renewed creation. Guys, when we gather together, the fellowship of believers, when you see your family gathered together over a loving dinner, when you hug and kiss your child, when you celebrate communion together, when we live life together, it is a taste of the banqueting feast that awaits us as God's people in heaven. That is a gift that he gives us to encourage us to keep on walking. But guys, even adversity has its own gifts and comforts. It makes us more like Christ. So every time you're sick, every time you experience hardship, every time you're dealing with a broken relationship, it's a reminder that you're a pilgrim. That this is not your final destination. That you're marching onward to a heavenly city and our, even our adversity comforts us in the Lord. Guys, we have a win-win. I shared that with the, the worship band earlier today. As a Christian, can I tell you something? That we have a win-win situation. When good things happen, it's a taste of, of heaven, and we celebrate and we enjoy it. And when bad things happen, we celebrate and enjoy it because it makes us more like Christ. It's a win-win. No matter the circumstances, our identity in Christ gives us a win-win. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I know it's possible some of you may be listening to this and you may be angry with God. You've expected God to comfort you on your own terms that you have set. The comfort you're asking for is not often the comfort God will always or even ordinarily give. Maybe you're asking for a miraculous healing. Maybe you're asking for $100,000 of debt to be gone. Maybe you're asking for relief in a horrible relationship or changed circumstances. And sometimes God does those things. Sometimes he chooses to do a miraculous work or he says out of situations. But when we define comfort solely by physical and the material we set us up for enormous disappointment because that's not how God's comfort often comes. No, the comfort God gives is grounded in his holy character and is designed to conform your character to his character. And honestly, no true believer would have it any other way. So tonight I'm speaking to those who are struggling, those who are angry with God because of the places he has sent you. I want you to know first and foremost that his comfort, he's decided to comfort you, but his comfort he decided to give you is bound up in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior. That Jesus suffered and endured the torments of sin and hell so that believers might know a relationship with God so fully, so intimately, and so well. He suffered enduring enormous hostility with perfect righteousness and love so that he might win for you a perfect record of righteousness. And he is our high priest who suffered for us that with great sympathy from the throne of heaven he can pray and intercede for us. So if you're here and you're suffering and you're upset with God and you're seeking comfort, here's my plea for you then. Find it in Him. Know Him. Know the suffering Savior. Not facts about Jesus, but know Him. Take hold of Him as your personal Lord and Savior. This idea of knowing is adoration, loving, and cherishing. That's what I want you to do. That's my prayer for you today, is that will you love, cherish, and adore Him? Will you know Him in the power of His resurrection and make fellowship with Him in His suffering and death? And here's the thing. It's going to require you to abandon your demand that God comfort you the way you want to be comforted but it's going to give you more than you could ever imagine. Purpose and meaning to your suffering. Hope for this eternal world. It's going to shape your character to make you more like Jesus. 
And guys, here's my guarantee. I can only say it's a guarantee because it's not my guarantee. It's promising the word. That as you entrust yourself to the Savior, as you trust yourself to Jesus, you will come to experience what other suffering Christians have experienced throughout the ages. And that's this. That the suffering of this present age are not worthy to be compared to the glory that should be revealed to us. So will you know him? And will you embrace suffering for his glory, knowing that it is conforming your character to his, and live in the reality of our win-win? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, God, we thank you for this loving relationship that you've blessed us with. God, that the reality is that we live in a win-win because of the work of Jesus and the love that you pursued us with. God, that our identity is this, that we are adopted children, and because we are adopted to your family, we win. We are more than conquerors, so that in the midst of suffering and tribulation and horrors and, and issues and, and depression and anxiety and joblessness and whatever problems there may be, God, we know that, God, you're, you, that it is light in comparison to your future glory and that you're using even that to shape us and to make us more like Jesus. We live in the reality of the win-win. And God, for those who are suffering, those who are suffering, we do not make light of their suffering whatsoever. We know how hard it is. Especially Jesus knows how he is a savior that suffered. So he doesn't make light of the suffering, but we do make, we make much of the glory. We do not make light of the suffering. We make much of what being Christ-like is like. We make much of the glory of eternity with you is like. We make much of the heavenly praises, the courts adoring you. We make much of you, God. So those who are suffering, those who, who need comfort, God, will you bring them the comforter? Will you give them Jesus? It's his name that we pray. Amen.